0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where we're marking the 75th anniversary of the end of the Pacific War in August 1945. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to Major Ronald Taylor, chairman of the Royal Hong Kong Regiment, the Volunteers Association, about republishing the account of Major Evan Stewart of the Hong Kong Volunteers in battle in December 1941. Ron also talks about Arthur May, who went up the peak to hoist the British flag after the Japanese military surrender, two weeks ahead of the arrival of British Admiral Harcourt and his fleet at the end of August 1945. But first, Les Bird has featured previously in the programme, talking about his career here as a Marine police officer between 1976 and 1997. But his father, also called Les Bird, was here 30 years before, when he came here in August 1945 with the Royal Navy and was tasked with mopping up any pockets of Japanese military resistance and then policing the streets against looters.
1: He was born in Staffordshire in England in 1924, which means at the start of the war, the outbreak of war in 1939, he was only 15 years old. And he came from a, I guess you could call it a Royal Naval family. My grandfather was in the Royal Navy and my father's three brothers joined up in 1939 in the Royal Navy. So he was left behind. So he was quite keen to get involved and kept volunteering and and being turned away because of his age. And I tried to work it out through records, and I think he actually made it into the Royal Navy as an ordinary seaman at the age of 17. His rationale behind that was, well, we were were running out of men, so they didn't take anybody at that stage. (laughs) Uh, So I guess that would be 1942.
0: And what was his involvement, so from 1942 onwards?
1: After basic training, he, he was sent out to Sydney in Australia, and he was posted to HMS Indomitable, which, is a, which was an aircraft carrier and he trained as a gun crew on the, on the aircraft carrier and I believe in the first half of 1944 he saw action against the Japanese in Surabaya and again in Sumatra included in his campaign medals are a Burma Star and the Pacific Bar which is the Pacific Star which you don't get both medals you, if you get one then you get the bar for the other one which tends to confirm the fact that that he was ashore somewhere in the southeast asian region
0: so largely in indonesia
1: he, yeah i think they were being deployed from uh, eventually the hms indomitable became part of the british pacific fleet which pushed north back through southeast asia fighting the japanese as they went but i think in the initial phase they were being deployed from sydney around Papua New Guinea, and Indonesia, which was occupied by, or well, pockets of it, was occupied by the Japanese.
0: So your father and his three brothers were all active in the Royal Navy during the Second World War. That must have been slightly worrying for your grandparents.
1: Yeah, well, well as you know, communications were basically almost zero. I do remember my grandmother saying she probably got one or two letters from the four of them throughout the five years. So they didn't actually know and certainly each individual brother had no idea where his three brothers were.
0: Oh, none of them served together?
1: No, no. In the later stages, when my father was in Hong Kong, he ran into his brother, his elder brother, purely purely by chance in the all street. Right.
0: And now, did all, did all four survive?
1: Yeah. Yeah, they did,
0: Now, when you were growing up, did your parents talk about what they were doing during mm. the Second World War at all?
1: No, not at all. I started to get involved in being interested in what they did by eavesdropping on the four brothers, discussing their time in the Royal Navy in private, and I would sneak in as a, a small child and listen and try and understand, but obviously I, I didn't comprehend really what what it was about, but I got the feeling that they'd seen some action and they'd all served in, in various areas around the world.
0: So, So with your... Uh, father and uncles, it was through eavesdropping. And then you, you found yeah. some medals in a drawer.
1: Yeah, well, that, that, yeah, I thought they were my father's, but they weren't, they were actually my mother's. And By this time, I was a teenager, and I had no idea that my mother had been in the Royal Artillery during the war. Uh, she volunteered in the ATS and then was seconded as a, a gunner in the south coast of England. She manned one of the guns, seconded to the Royal Artillery. And I've actually got a photograph of her in uniform with the, the actual badge on her uniform, which is the Royal Artillery Gunner badge. Only people who actually worked on the guns were allowed to wear this particular flash.
0: And uh, what's the ATS?
1: Uh, it's the Auxiliary Territorial Service. It was how women joined the military. And by being a member of the ATS, you were then posted to, to one of the areas where they needed female military
0: people. Now, your parents are also mentioned in your own memoirs, A Small Band of Men, which is your, or also your work with the Hong Kong Marine Police from 1976 to 1997, or just ahead of the handover. And what uh, I enjoyed in that book is you talking about your mum and that you've discovered these medals of Ruby Bird in a drawer and that she's pretty much just ironing in a very practical way as she tells you about helping to shoot down enemy aircraft.
2: Yes,
1: yeah, amazing. I mean, she was a typical mother of the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, I found these medals in the drawer and thinking they were my father's, but then realising they weren't, I asked them where she got them from, and she said, oh, they were mine. Um, uh, <laughs> and I, and I, I thought, oh, how, do, how does a housewife get medals for ironing and, and doing the washing and cooking my dinner? So uh, I was quite surprised. Yeah, she, she saw active service, and she got into apparently quite a few gunfights with the the Luftwaffe as they they flew over uh, the channel to bomb London. Uh, It was their job to to actually shoot them down.
0: Now you yourself came to Hong Kong in 1976 as a provisional inspector to go to police training school here but uh, before that you didn't actually know that your father had been to Hong Kong and that was at the time of the surrender in 1945.
1: Yeah, he didn't tell me that. Even when I joined, I told him I was coming to Hong Kong to join the Royal Hong Kong Police and was posted to the Marine District, he didn't mention the fact that he'd been to Hong Kong as part of the initial force that arrived in August 1945. It was only after he came to visit me in 1980 that he said, oh yeah, I've actually been here before. And I said, really? Uh, and then he began to tell me a few stories about his time here. So it, it was it was a bit of a shock because being in the Marine Police, I'd, I'd arranged quite a few things for him to see that I thought he'd be interested in, like a trip on a, a Marine Police launch around West Lama Channel. Uh, and we did that. And he knew more about Lama Island than I did. He, he said, oh, yeah, I've been there. And I, I did that. And there were kamikaze boats here. And, and I was one of the guys sent out to check them out. The EMBs, I think they were called, Explosive Motorboats. So he'd he'd actually seen service here. He actually arrived before Admiral Harcourt. I think Admiral Harcourt arrived on Swiftsure on the 30th of August. But the surrender was actually the 15th of August. And between those two dates, he was basically looking for the stragglers, Japanese military who hadn't realised the surrender was was actually for real.
0: That's fascinating with the time, actually, because it was a very odd couple of weeks here in Hong Kong. There was no actual Mm. guarantee that uh, uh, Hong Kong would actually revert to or remain as a British colony after 1945. And uh, certainly Mm. the Americans, uh, perhaps a little bit in tandem with Chiang Kai-shek, were also... Actually. looking at uh, whether <laughs> whether it would remain British. So yeah. you've got Harcourt steaming in, and it was it called Swift Shore, the, the um, yeah, ship he was in? Shore. Yeah,
1: yeah that, was, that was his flagship. So my father's time in Hong Kong was really divided into two halves. There was the first two weeks, which you've just explained, was the middle of August, the surrender, until Harcourt arrived. And then there was the next six months, which was an interesting time too, because he became almost a police officer for the first few weeks because the the police force hadn't got itself organized properly. And so uh, a lot of the military guys were deployed to the streets to do routine patrols. And he told me predominantly it was anti-looting duties because now the Japanese had gone a lot of the properties for him anyway. uh, He was deployed on Hong Kong Island along mid-levels and up on the peak. The houses were being looted and they were sent up on foot to, to try and stop that.
0: Yeah, an interesting time and also I'd have thought that a time where you just had to also adapt really fast to the the situation because, I mean, Mm. if we look at, I mean, areas like Wan Chai, for example, were heavily bombed. Mm. As you say, there would have been plenty of people who either had been, particularly when you go into up the peak, people who would have been evacuated often in 42 or 43 um, Mm. and uh, sent overseas or were in a prisoner of war or civilian camp. So it was a very chaotic time, I'd have thought, in Hong Kong.
1: Yes, yeah yeah, I mean, talk about chaotic he he, he told me a story about a, a patrol one evening uh up Garden Road, a royal naval patrol that he was in, and was fired upon from the top of Garden Road, and they exchanged gunfire for a couple of minutes to each party realised they were both British <laughs> British oh, <no>. officers. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the team at the top were all marines, and they were actually shooting at each other. Fortunately, no one was hit, and they sorted that out. But that's an example of, of how fragile, I guess, the, the whole the whole place was for weeks, months.
0: So when he came in, where was he coming from, and uh, in what sort of ship did he come
1: I'm not sure. He, he was on he was on several ships, and the only one I can confirm is is the Indomitable. I know he was on other other ships, and he came in. I don't know. I don't know which ship he came into Hong Kong, or if he was a ship. Whether it was deployed on a small boat from a larger ship uh, that was standing off. I got the impression he was in small teams that had been sent in to initially eradicate any resistance. That was their main duty and then do anything that they could that needed to be done. As you say, you made it up as you went along, They're giving help to whoever needed it, I guess. Do
0: you know where he stayed in Hong Kong?
1: I know he was posted to Hong Kong Island. He was staying somewhere on Hong Kong Island because another of his duties was to escort the Japanese prisoners of war. This is some months later, over to Tak, on a daily basis. They would march through the streets of central usually four or five hundred uh, Japanese soldiers, over to Kaitak, and their job was to repair the runway that had been bombed by the Allies uh, to stop the Japanese uh, using it. So he would take a a party of maybe three, four hundred over to Kaitak every day and then bring them back in the evening.
0: So he was here for six months?
1: Mm, Yeah, he was here till the early part of 1946,
0: so your parents were Les and Ruby Bird, and and you're saying that so your father Les Bird also mm. bumped into his older brother here.
1: Yes, surprisingly enough, in the China Fleet Club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, actually, in 1980, when he came here um, as a marine police officer, I had uh, associate membership to the China Fleet Club. But of course, it was the China Fleet Club, the old one before they knocked it down in the early 80s. So I was able to take him in to the China Fleet Club. The fleet club that he socialised in uh, in 1946 and that's where I got a lot of my, my information from him after a few drinks in the bar yes.
0: <laughs> and the memories came flooding back
1: they, they, they did yeah it's quite remarkable actually uh, but, and I do remember when we stepped outside and we stood in Gloucester Road, and he looked across the road at the, the buildings, whatever was up at that time, and he said uh, he looked at the pavement, he said, "This is actually the waterfront yes. this is where this is where the waterfront was. If you came out here and took two or three more steps, you would end up in, end up in the harbour.
0: How did you feel about being back him yes mm. <laughs>
1: Man of little emotion. I don't know really. I think I think he enjoyed it. I think he, he enjoyed being with me, particularly on that trip. He came back several more times afterwards. But that first trip, I could see the memories coming back as we saw various things. I was able to take him all over Hong Kong, being in the Marine Police. Uh, so we were able to see things from a maritime perspective. We went into HMS Tamar, and he, you know a lot of his memories came back there. So I think it was quite. I think he enjoyed it. I think he enjoyed it.
0: My thanks to former Marine Police Commander Les Bird talking there about his parents, Les and Ruby Bird, and their work in the Second World War. Les Bird is the author of his memoirs, A Small Band of Men, and Englishman's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police. Moving on to the second half of the programme, I chat with Major Ronald Taylor, the chairman of the Royal Hong Kong Regiment, the Volunteers Association, who tells me about the republication of Major Evan Stewart's December 1941 Hong Kong Volunteers in Battle, when Stewart ran the Volunteers Number 3 company.
3: Yes, this Sunday, unfortunately, we're very restricted because of the COVID-19 restrictions as to what we can do. What we would have liked to have done, what had been planned, was a parade from Hong Kong to Chimta Choi uh, to the Cultural Centre, by the uh, uniformed cadets and veterans and uh, whether a salute would be taken at the cultural centre. Unfortunately, this can't take place. So the ceremony at the City Hall, which has always been in the past open to the public, will take place, but as a private ceremony, where unfortunately no public can be uh, permitted. This is a great pity, but at least there will be a ceremony at City Hall, which wreaths will be laid by the government uh, on behalf of Hong Kong, by the veteran organizations and, of course, the consul generals of those countries whose forces were represented in 1941. It will be a a simple ceremony, but on the form of uh, the normal remembrance ceremony.
0: Now, over the years, you will have known uh, a number of former volunteers and also from those years, from, from the Second World War here, and also a, a number of uh, active servicemen at that time. How do you feel when you are at the Cenotaph and now at City Hall, as you remember them? I
3: remember a number of these people as, as friends, to think now that they're no longer with us. And it's, at times, it was difficult for them to really explain exactly what Uh, what they'd gone through in 1941. And bit by bit, things came out, but one never really got a full picture of how they'd suffered. Uh, They didn't want to remember. So I think it's right that we remember them for what they did.
0: Next week, we've got uh, a book coming out that is actually a reprint or a republishing of Mm. a a book of an account by Evan Stewart or Major Mm. Evan Stewart. Now he was part Mm. of the Volunteers and uh, uh, he
3: was very much.
0: Yes. And this has been I mean, it's been republished. It was it started off in the 1950s when he originally wrote it, then was republished in the early 2000s and now again. So uh, tell me about Evan Stewart's account.
3: Well, Evan Stewart, uh, he was the I think the, the only person who actually was involved in the battle physically there commanding number three company at Wong Nhae Gap. Uh, he's the only person who actually wrote about the battle. Other people who have written histories and excellent histories on the battle have, have all done it by hearsay or uh, second-hand uh, accounts. And Evan Stewart's one of the earlier ones to come out. And many historians have taken his account as a reference for their fuller accounts of the battle as a whole.
0: Now, he actually was a prisoner of war after the Battle of Hong Kong in December 1941 and uh, so wrote part of his account there and then after the war. Is that right?
3: Yes. While in captivity, he brought together his fellow officers and asked them to record uh, what they did and what they remembered of the battle. I think a lot of this must have been done in secret because the, the Japanese did not want any accounts kept However, after the war, his work was re- revised and he spent a long time. And I have an ac- account from his son, uh, Michael, who remembers lots of pieces of paper laid out on the dining room table as he sorted through the various accounts of various people. And so uh, the book was, was, was formed. It wasn't actually published initially until 1953, which is a good few years after the, the war.
2: Early in the morning, at about 0.300 hours, a platoon of A Company Royal Rifles from Repulse Bay area reached the ridge and reinforced the troops there. The other platoons of A Company and the two Scottish platoons were held up, and soon after dawn, a heavy enemy attack forced these to withdraw, and the ridge was isolated again. Throughout the day, there was desultory fire on the houses. After nightfall, Lieutenant Colonel Macpherson decided to send the RAOC personnel to Repulse Bay. Fredericks was given command. A party was sent out under CSM Hamlin, RASC, to reconnoitre a route along Middle Spur. This party had a brush with the enemy and retired to Overbays. The fate of the men who left the ridge that night is a story of its own and a grim one. In the dark, it was impossible to keep touch. Japanese patrols were on the alert. Few of the men knew the direction. A number were cut off. The remainder approached the hotel, which was by then closely invested by the enemy, and had to run the gauntlet of machine guns as they made their final dash through the glare of a searchlight. Less than a dozen men got through. Those who surrendered, having lost their way on the hillside, were taken, together with Hamlin's party, to Euclid. They were tied up and beaten with rifle butts. Some hours later, the prisoners were taken out to the lawn, roped together in threes, and butchered. Hamlin, shot through the face, was left for dead, but contrived to crawl away. He was the only survivor. Many days later, Lieutenant Colonel Ride, HKVDC, saw the corpses of these Canadian and British soldiers piled in heaps, their hands still tied behind their backs. The force left to hold the ridge comprised some 20 Canadians and 40 of the RASC, half of these from the HKVDC. Rations were short and there was practically no drinking water.
0: Because I think Evan Stewart, he passes away in 1956 or 1958.
3: No, And uh, 1958.
0: But I have to say, as somebody who, with the Hong Kong Heritage Programme, I'm not exactly an oral history historian as such, because that would require hours and hours of people talking about their memories. That's a kind of different study to producing a radio programme. But of course, you are dealing a lot with people's perceived and actual memories. And they are the people who were there. They are the people who experienced this, which means that normally the, the memories can be very true, but I think what's very valuable about what Evan Stewart did was the fact that he's, by talking to these various other uh, officers within the camp, you're getting all of these different accounts in, and you can also cross compare facts, of course.
3: Uh, yes, uh, certainly true, because his account was of the actions of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps. And of course, he was number three company, he could talk or write in detail about what happened at Wang Chong and what he did afterwards. But the, the other parts of the Corps where he wasn't there, he had to rely on others, particularly down in Stanley, where unfortunately there were a number of uh, people killed there. And so hence it was probably difficult to really get a true picture of exactly what did go on in Stanley yes. on, on the final stand.
0: Yeah, where was he? Evan
3: Stewart initially was on Stonecutter's Island with the Number 3 company, which is the Eurasian Company. Then when it was decided that Kowloon was to be evacuated, he obviously left Stonecutter's Island and moved to Wong Yichung Gap. And he was at Wong Yichung Gap when the Japanese surprised the defenders by arriving there. The British forces weren't aware how far they had advanced. And this was a strategic point for the, the Japanese to capture Wong Geng Chung, which they did, which really then made the defense of Hong Kong Island very much more difficult. Evan himself was injured and basically hunkered down for a while after the Japanese had attacked. And he was able to escape. Well, first of all, he enabled the, the people with him to escape in twos and threes. Then eventually he escaped and basically going through the Japanese lines. And he reported back for duty, where he is told, no, you're injured. You should be hospitalized. He said, no, I'm fit enough to fight. Where do I go now? A great deal of courage, but he never really recovered from his injuries.
0: So it's the story of the Hong Kong volunteers in battle by Major yeah. Evan Stewart yeah. to be republished by your association and also or for your association by uh, blacksmith books. So why did you want to get it back out? We ran out of previous copies. Uh, <laughs> people uh, had, sh- had shown interest in buying it and said,
3: sorry, we've yeah. basically sold out. And there's been a, a tremendous interest in the military history over the years. A number of excellent books have been produced recently. And it felt it was time to bring this book out again. Over the years, we've added a list of all those people who who were mobilised on the 8th of December in 1941 with what happened to them, as best we know. And then decided those people who were honoured by military honours, we should list them. And that took quite a research to find them all. And this time, we have added a bit of uh, history, or it's now history, in 1953, the coronation Evan Stewart led the, the contingent from Hong Kong, the military contingent from Hong Kong, to the coronation uh, procession, and he wrote about it. And this is a wonderful piece of prose uh, stuck away in one of our journals. I felt it was really ought to be made public so other people can enjoy it and appreciate a bit about the coronation. Coupled with this, there are two excellent tributes to Evan uh, when he passed away, one by... Uh, Brigadier Sir Lindsay Ride, who was the founder and the runner of the British Army Aid Group in China. And the other one was by Bevan Field, who was under command of Evan in the Battle of Hong Kong and, and held out all day in a, in a pillbox and really held up the Japanese advance. He was captured, but the, the Japanese respected him because he'd done so well. They allowed him to be a prisoner as opposed to the way they treated a lot of their people they had captured. It was thought he would never survive because he was injured, but he did, and uh, subsequently became second in command of the regiment. And uh, his other leading thing was, while as a prisoner of war, he reformed Hong Kong land and got Hong Kong land in a form to be as it is today, uh, while still a, as a prisoner of war.
0: Now, a few years ago, you wrote a, a book about Arthur May, and he was, I mean, he did a variety of things, but he's also in the context of, uh, you know, talking about the surrender of the Japanese military here in August 1945. Arthur May did something actually in raising the British flag, but can you tell me about that and who he was? Yes,
3: sir. Uh, just go back a little little way. Uh, on the, it was late on the 14th of August in 1945, nearly midnight, Japan announced her unconditional surrender, it wasn't until the 16th of August that news of the surrender was heard in Hong Kong. Basically, the Japanese were in disbelief. They'd been brought up to believe that Japan was invincible and it was more honorable to die than surrender. The news of the surrender filtered into the prisoners' war camps and the, and the internment camps. And then the Japanese were directly asked or even told by the, about their surrender. And they were equally told by the prisoners that they were no longer going to obey Japanese orders. Arthur May at that time was in the Matterway internment camp. We know about Stanley and we know about Shamshipo. Matterway is less documented. It had been a camp been moved of various uh, uses during the, the occupation. But in August 1944... The third nationals, the people who were strictly not ag- against the Allies or against the the Japanese, they were interned. Japan became, became worried about them. Included there was Arthur May who, and others who had not been interned for one reason or another. Hearing about the surrender, Arthur... Found a flag or had it one hidden within the camp, which is much a rather dangerous or rather stupid thing to do. First of all, they hoisted this flag, the Union Jack, uh, within the Mattaway camp. Where was that? Uh, Mattaway camp, Long Argyle Street, not far from Kaitake. It doesn't exist now. All it's a housing uh, development now.
0: So he hoisted this flag that there was buried? He hoisted
3: this flag. Uh, the Japanese told them to take it down. And Sir Selwyn uh, Clark, who was there, who was basically the senior person that everyone respected, refused the order, but as darkness fell, consented, saying it was the British tradition that flags fly only until sunset. Huh. The following day, Arthur and Jim Brown, uh, who had been moved from Stanley to Mattaway, they made their way across from... They stepped out of the camp made their way across to Hong Kong Island uh, during the night and went to where his mother and father were still living. Why they went in turn, Well, that's another story. There, his mother, Arthur's mother, removed from the inside of a cushion a much larger Union Jack. I think it was an eight foot one. A, it's a big one. And they made their way to the peak where at 9 a.m. on the 18th, uh, they hoisted this flag on the peak much to the consternation of the, the Japanese guard who were up there, who didn't really know what to do.
0: Interesting.
3: Uh, from the peak, the flag could be seen from basically all of Kowloon and much of Hong Kong Island. Arthur claimed that he had re-established British sovereignty over Hong Kong by flying the British flag from the highest point uh,
0: on the island. The flag now is in, with the Museum of Coastal Defence. My thanks to Major Ronald Taylor, the chairman of the Royal Hong Kong Regiment, the Volunteers Association, talking there on Arthur May and earlier on the republishing of Evan Stewart's Volunteers in Battle. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.